guys, I am so excited for today's message. Um, I'm always excited to preach, but um, as I was praying about this this week and has been uh, studying this for the weeks ahead leading up to this Sunday, I found that, that this chapter, this, this section that we're going to be looking at, so much resembles where we are right now. And so I'm so excited for what we're going to see that God has to say to us in this scripture as we're going to be tackling his word. And, and I'm going to go ahead and tell you, Spoiler alert, a little warning ahead. Uh, we're covering a large amount of scripture this morning. Instead of covering just a few verses or maybe a few chapters, believe it or not, we're going to be covering three entire books of the Bible. And I know some of you are probably thinking, great, I'm stuck here. Um, can I fake an emergency? Can, you know, the whole, like, someone texts me saying, oh, there's a family emergency kind of deal. Relax. We're going to go by this really quickly, but I'm so excited for what we're going to see God say as we dive into Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And I know you're probably thinking those are the last three books I actually wanted those to be, right? But God has something wonderful to say in this, and I'm so excited for this. Let me go ahead and start by um, making a comment. If you are someone who loves scary stories or loves to tell those spooky campfire stories to scare your friends and, and your family members, you probably have noticed there's always a theme, a, a same setting that's repeating itself all the time. It's this wilderness setting, right? Because there's something really terrifying about a wilderness, about being lost and with danger looking around every shadowy corner, right? There's something primal within us that is terrified of the wilderness. And yet... We love to go hiking. I'll be honest, I, that describes me. Like, I'm a little bit scared to be out in the wilderness, but I love to go hiking. I grew up in the Smoky Mountains and Sevierville, Gallenberg, Pigeon Forge, and all that. So while here, it's inevitable that you're going to love to hunt and fish, where I'm from, it's inevitable that you're going to love to hike and try to get as close as you can to the bears, right? That's where I grew up and the kind of people I, I was raised up to be among. So I love to go hiking. And my wife loves me. So a few years ago, before I became the pastor here, we took a trip, an anniversary trip to Utah just to go hiking. This was a big deal for us because all of our vacations always end up going to the beach, and I don't like the beach. So a trip to go to the, the uh, desert and just hike around was awesome for me. And one of the days when we were hiking out, uh, we came up to this wall, this rock wall, and I looked at the map, and it looked like on the map that the trail continued further on, but we had this obstacle in front of us, this rock wall. Now, my wife at the first moment was like, yeah, we got to turn back. Let's just walk back to the car. And I was like, no, 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 this is an adventure. Let's climb over this wall. Let's rock climb over this wall, and we'll try to find the trail on the other side, and we'll keep going. And my wife puts up with some of my crazy ideas sometimes, so she agreed because she loves me very much. And so we went over this wall, and we got to the other side and found out that we couldn't get back over. And I'm like, okay, so we are forced to go forward. And here's this area where we can see for miles in any direction. It's nothing but desert and sand and some cactus and all that over, all over the place. But you know what there wasn't? There wasn't a trail. And we're starting to walk and heading out, and I'm realizing very quickly, we're lost in the desert right now. We're just wandering around hopelessly, and my wife is trusting me that I know how to read a map and get us to safety. And I'll be honest, this was not my best husband moment in our marriage. And I'm sitting here, I'm walking a few paces ahead of her, and I'm constantly mouthing, God, please help, please help. I don't want to die in the desert, all right? And we're just going for miles and miles. And my wife, for her credit, not once did she ever make a comment, hey, let's stop and ask someone for directions or anything like that, because there was no one around, and we had no cell signal, all right? But for her credit, she didn't do that. And it gets to a point where I'm walking, where I'm walking a little bit ahead of her, and I'm sitting there thinking, we haven't found anything. We might have to camp out here. I might have to figure out how to start a fire, and we're going to have to like survive on lizards tonight. And, and I'm sitting here trying to map out in my mind, how am I going to persuade my wife to do this? And we're walking, and just we happen to turn the corner, and we can see in the distance there was an RV camp. And from there, we were able to find a map and a paved road back all the way back to our car. And we didn't have to spend the night in the desert. But I was really worried. Because we were wandering around the, the wilderness, and a lot could happen in the wilderness when you're wandering around and you're lost. It's a dangerous situation. Because the wilderness is its experience 
where we're tested. It's something that's not just a physical reality, but it's something I'm convinced every single one of us will go through our own wilderness experience in life. Even if you're a city dweller and you never leave your room, right? You're going to experience something that can be characterized as you walking through a wilderness. A time when you feel tested. A time when you feel like your resources are limited where you feel drained, where maybe even the things that once gave you passion and excitement in life no longer have that same feeling. Whether it's a career or a relationship or maybe even the church you go to, where you reach a moment where you're like, it's just not the same. It doesn't affect me like it used to and you feel like you're wandering. And this is not a bad thing, okay? But this is a time of testing. This is a time where the true you is coming out. And when you go through a wilderness experience, you're never the same afterwards. And sometimes it pulls out the best of you and sometimes it points out the worst in you. But no matter what, you're never the same. And if you've gone through an experience like that, you're probably sitting there thinking, yes, I can relate to this. I have those experiences in my life where I have gone through a wilderness experience and it's forever changing me. It's tested me, and I know a little bit more of who I really am because of this experience. Well, the story that we're going to be focusing on this morning is looking at the Israelites facing the exact same thing. As they're wandering through the the wilderness, following God, heading towards the promised land, this is a time when they are tested, when they are seeing the real them. And it's not all pleasant to look at. Now, if you've been following along with us in this series, you know that we are walking through the Bible from chronological order to see how it all fits together, how God is telling one really big story. And last week, we ended the book of Exodus. And in the book of Exodus, remember, we saw like this action story where God came to the rescue, where he saved the people. He wanted to become king over them. He wants to dwell with them. He gave them the Ten Commandments and the tabernacle to say, here's how I'm committed to you. Here's how I want you to live. Here's how I'm going to live among you. And it's this wonderful thing, right, in the book of Exodus. But remember, how did it end? It ended with them building the tabernacle, this tent where they could live with God, and Moses couldn't enter into it. Moses, the hero of the story so far, the one who has put up with the Israelites, he has faced down Pharaoh on behalf of God, and at the end of the book of Exodus, he can't go into the presence of God. He can't enter the tabernacle. And this is a big deal because remember, it was showing us that our sin can keep us from being in God's presence. That our sin is no laughing matter, but we were made to be in God's presence. But this is the thing that needs to be dealt with. And so a solution needs to be addressed. And believe it or not, that's what the book of Leviticus is about for the ancient Israelites. See, the book of Leviticus, I know, let's be honest, we probably don't like reading the book of Leviticus. Let's just be honest, it was written about five or 6,000 years ago. It has a whole bunch of stuff in it that doesn't relate to us. Let's just be honest, it, it can seem kind of boring in our day and age, right? And I know you think that because I know many of you this past January started off with this big exciting plan of I'm going to read through the Bible this year, right? And you get to about February, March, and you hit Leviticus and you just stop, right? Because you're like, man, I I can't read about another goat being killed again. Like, this doesn't deal with my life right now. And so we, we oftentimes stop. But for the ancient Israelites, Leviticus meant something completely different. Leviticus was about a holy God saying, this is how you can be in my presence. And so Leviticus outlines sacrifices for sin. It also tells some purity laws. It gives some structure. It tells, hey, I want you to be a people who care for the poor, and I want you to be people of justice, okay? This is what the Leviticus is all about, where God's saying, here's the solution of how you can be in my presence if you be this kind of people. And here's the amazing thing. The book of Leviticus works. If you open up the very beginning of the book of Leviticus, the very first uh, verse, right in the beginning, we can see how this works, right? So in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Yahweh called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Now remember, that's the big dilemma that the book of Exodus ends on, that God and Moses, they can't be in the same place, and neither can the Israelites. So Moses can't even enter into the tabernacle. So the book of Leviticus addresses that problem in the very first sentence, saying God is in the tent, in the tabernacle, and he's having to speak from it to Moses who's out on the outside. Moses who's the representative of the people, right? 
Well, when we get to the book of Numbers, the very next book, after everything Leviticus has talked about and how people start to do what the book of Leviticus talks about, the book of Numbers opens up in a very similar way. It starts out in verse 1 of chapter 1. It says, Yahweh spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting. One little word, and it tells us that the book of Leviticus worked. Now God is able to be with his people, this people that he has saved, that he's redeemed, that he's rescued. He's like, these people are mine. Now God is able to be with them. And everything seems wonderful and great, right? Now we can keep moving forward in the story, right? And so God's plan with the Israelites, remember, was he wanted to get them into their homeland, the, the promised land, the land where he promised Abraham says, your descendants are going to be owning this land, and when they're in this land, I'm going to work my blessing out through them into the world that's going to fix the world through these people. So the first step is we got to get them to the promised land. So God's like, okay, we've got this whole uh, system worked out where you can be worshiping me, you can be in the tabernacle, we can do this, we can be a posse, we can be a party, right? And so it's time to move out. And so God gets all 12 of the, the tribes lined up. They start marching out. They follow God uh, on, by this tornado by day and a tornado by fire by night, all right, for uh, all the way to the promised land. Now, from Mount Sinai to the promised land, a little geography uh, lesson here, or geographical lesson, whichever word is right. Um, the trip between Mount Sinai to the promised land is a two-week hike on foot. But this journey took them 40 years. Now, that's, that's the ultimate being lost, right? And the reason why this happens is because a number of different things happen on that two-week trip to the promised land that kind of extends that two-week trip to 40 years. It starts off day three of the traveling. And we get this story in chapter 11 where the people complained in the hearing of Yahweh about their misfortunes. And when Yahweh heard it, his anger was kindled. Now, what are they complaining about, right? Like, they're on their way to the promised land. The land that God says, this land is flowing with milk and honey. This is going to be a good land, and good things are going to happen through you uh, for God's will once you get into this place, right? What could they possibly be complaining about? Well, the next verse tells us, in verse 4, it says, Oh, this is what they're complaining about. This is, oh, that we had meat to eat. And we remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. This manna is bread from heaven that God was giving them every single day. Think of it like you wake up and there's one of those Colton's rolls just by your bedside every single day, right? Like that would be wonderful. And God for these two weeks journey is giving them this food. He's like, I'm going to give you the food you need while you're traveling. So every single day, man, you get all the carbs, all the Colton rolls. And they're complaining by day three. I don't know about you, but I could eat those rolls every single day. So picture it something like this. And they are complaining because they want something different on the menu. And this is so sad. How absurd can this be? Like, it shows you how bitter and broken these guys' hearts are. I mean, this is the people who remember in the book of Exodus, in the very beginning, or around chapter 19, God says, I want to make you a kingdom of priests. And they're grumbling about the menu item on the way. Does God really want to bring his rescue plan through these people? And we can look at them and judge them for that, but think about ourselves. How often do we start grumbling and complaining and moaning about different little things that we want, that we feel like we deserve, and that we think we don't have, when we don't realize how blessed we truly are? I mean, right now, we're in a room with roof overheads. There's AC. We live in a place where you can get hot water by the flip of a switch, we have electricity where you can flip a switch. You can have light so that you can be up at night. We have all these wonderful blessings. You have fridges probably full of food at your home, or at the very least, when you're driving home, you're going to pass multiple restaurants where you can get food for a reasonable price, unless it's McDonald's, right? We have all these blessings around us, and yet, and yet how often do we find the tiny littlest things to grumble and complain about? Things that we think, man, if I just had this thing over here, then I'll be happy. Oh, I deserve this thing over here. I've worked hard for this thing over here. In reality, we're the exact same way as the Israelites were. So we can't really judge them because their nature is also our nature when we are so incredibly blessed. But here's the thing. This wasn't even the worst thing they do. The things they do just stacks up because right after this, 
You see the story where Moses has, you know, he's got this brother and sister and they're traveling there, you know, maybe a few days later into this traveling and they start grumbling. His brothers and sisters start grumbling and they start telling people, hey, you know what? We would do a better job leading you than Moses. I mean, it's it's a terrible story when you read it and you're like, man, Moses has sacrificed so much for these people. He's the one who's constantly putting his neck on the line. He's just trying to listen to God and be faithful and lead these people to where God wants them to be. And his own siblings are complaining behind his back saying, oh, we would do a better job than you. Have you ever had that experience happen to you? Where you're just trying to do what you know God wants you to do and people, maybe even the people who you least expect, turn their back on you and backtalk you? and say rumors and things like that about you, that's not a comfortable position to be. And so that happens, and it's just it's really embarrassing when you look at these, these people who are supposed to be the kingdom of priests. Well, they get to the border of the, uh, the land, right to the promised land, and we can read them like, okay, they made some mistakes, but maybe now they're right here on the edge. We can get into this. The promises of God are going to be fulfilled. The rescue of humanity is going to happen. Well, there's a little bit of a pause. It starts off with God saying to Moses in the book of Numbers, chapter 13, he says, send me or send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. So God's like, before you go in, send in a whole bunch of people to spy it out, to map it out, to get all the resources, right? So Moses picks 12 men. They go into the promised land. They spend 40 days there. They come back, they report, and the report is wonderful. They're like, yeah, this place is filled with all these resources. It's a beautiful place. We will never go hungry in this place. Man, this is definitely the promised land. This is the place where we want to be, right? Well, there's a catch. For all these wonderful things they announce, they have to admit that there is some bad news kind of attached to this. It goes on in the next verse, verse 28. Where God says, or where they say, however, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. So they're like, here's this wonderful thing that God has for us, but there is a little catch. There is this risk. And so often, I find, at least in my own experiences, when God gives us a promise and gives us some vision, something exciting, he's like, this is what I want to bring you to. There's always a risk. There's always this like tiny little bad news that comes up. And, and I think God does that intentionally because he's asking us, will we trust God to take care of this? Like think of it like for us as a church, okay? Months ago when our leadership stepped up and said, hey, we would like to move into uh, this place. We would like to purchase this building. We would like to, to renovate it, to get in there. We have this vision of what it could be, what we could be in that location and all that God can do through us in this location, Right? But we also had to admit some slight bad news, right? Uh, Hey, this is going to cost us. This is going to take time of renovation. And we're going to spend years faithfully paying this off. But we saw that the, the vision of what God had for us was far greater than this bad news because we believe that God could take care of it. And so far, we have been watching time and time again as God has done that. See, this is oftentimes how God works. And so he's doing the exact same thing with the, the Israelites. He's like, this is the wonderful thing I want to lead you into. And all the God, I'm going to do some wonderful things through you once you get into this location. But are you going to trust me to take care of these little obstacles? Now, the people are split on this, right? So the 12 uh, spies, two of them, Joshua and Caleb, immediately speak up. And they're like, yes, after everything we saw God do in Egypt and how he's taking care of us and how he's been leading us, we are so confident God is going to get us through this, that God is going to bring a victory for us. They, they tell people... In in chapter 13, verse 30, it says, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Let me tell you, you want a Joshua or Caleb in your corner. You want someone who's like, man, God is going to do something wonderful through you. And at the very least, I hope you would want to aspire to be a Joshua or Caleb. But the majority of people are not. And we get a glimpse of that in this moment as these two step up and they're like, this is wonderful. But the other 10, the other 10 think differently. The other 10 in the very next verse, they say, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are. And so they go around spreading this message of dread to everyone else where they, instead of looking at, here's the vision what God wants to do through us, this amazing blessing God has, they're like, no, this is this bad little thing over here. This is terrible. This, we cannot overcome this obstacle. I know God has gotten us this far, but God will not take us any further. And so they spread this message of dread. And what we see happen is in chapter 14, verse 1, it says, Then all the congregation 
raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is Yahweh bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? That last line is ironic. I mean, remember, in Egypt, they were slaves. They were abused. They were in constant oppression. Their children were murdered. And they're stopping to say, you know what? It wasn't that bad. It had its, its flaws. But if you look at it, maybe in a certain way, we could deal with this, right? You know, the occasional genocide of our children, we can deal with this rather than trust God. It's ridiculous. And yet, how often do we do the same thing? How often do we put trust in things that want to destroy us rather than trusting the God who says, leave that behind. I want to take you to something great. Yes, the obstacles are in front of you, but he's the one who's greater than those obstacles, who asks us to trust him, to listen to him, to have faith in him. But these people, they couldn't. And this is the people who are supposed to be a kingdom of priests. The people who are supposed to spread and declare God's message of hope and salvation for all the world, right? That they're the people who God wants to use to bring his blessing back into the world. But they don't trust this God. In fact, the situation is so bad that they start to panic, that they start to find, let's get rid of Moses. Let's just find a new leader who's going to lead us back to Egypt. In fact, the text tells us in verse 4, they say, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. In this moment, we're seeing that the God's people would rather have someone who would lead them where they want to be led rather than have someone who would lead them where God wants to lead them. And that's a dangerous thing. That's a dangerous thing even today for any church. Part of our responsibility as pastors and elders is to lead you where God wants us to go, not where we want to go. That's our responsibility. Because if we don't do that, then we make the mistake that the Israelites are making. And here they are, they're like, we need to get rid of Moses. And God is infuriated by this. And God says, you know, he speaks up in verse 22 of chapter 14. He says, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and you have put me to the test these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice, none of them shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of these, those who despise me shall see it. God's saying, you know what? You don't trust me. You don't want to move forward in this plan. You don't want to go this next step. Well, that's fine. You're not going to. It's not going to be allowed for you. And this is terrible news. Because remember, God wants to fix the world. He wants to set the world right. And part of the step in the process is to get God's people where they need to be, right? And here he's saying, nope, door's shut. It's not happening for any of you. And the people are distraught by this. And some of them were like, well, you know what? We don't care. If God says no, we're going to do it anyways. And so they tried to cross the border. And the story says that they get struck down as soon as they cross the border. Because God's like, nope. And so we're left with this terrible news. Where here's the people who saw God rescue them. Who saw all that God wanted them to do. And they're not able to go in. And we pick back up on the story 40 years later. You see, for 40 years, they go wandering around the desert, just waiting to die. And so the story picks up 40 years later with their children. And our hopes should be high of, okay, maybe maybe this generation will be better. The last generation, yeah, they they screwed the pooch. They're, They're out, okay? They're all dead. They're all gone. Maybe this new generation, we have better hopes for them. But we find that they make the same mistakes as their parents. It starts off where there's a point where they're traveling and they get thirsty. I mean, they're in the desert. They get thirsty, right? Now, with their parents, a story happened when they were traveling and they got thirsty. They came to this rock wall, and God told Moses, take your staff, strike it, and I'm going to split that rock wall open, and water is going to come gushing out that's going to feed everybody, okay? And that's wonderful. But in this moment, it's a little bit different. They come to probably the same exact rock wall, and God has a different command for Moses. He's like, I want you to do something a little bit different. And here's what he says. It's in chapter 20 now. Moses, or God tells Moses, Take the staff and assemble the congregation. Gather everyone up. Take the thing that you used beforehand, right? You and Aaron and your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. And he says, tell her. Don't, don't hit it, but speak to it. Basically, he's saying, pray in front of everyone that I would do a work that this thing would give you life, right? 
He's, he's wanting Moses to very clearly give credit to God for what's about to happen, right? And he says, so you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. Simple instructions. Gather everybody up, speak to the rock. It says, you know what? On the name of God, open up. Let's have some water, right? But Moses doesn't do that. See, Moses has been traveling with these people for 40 years. And you can imagine the anger that's probably been building up. For 40 years, he's probably thinking, all this time has been wasted. We could have been somewhere else. And we've wasted all this time because we did not trust God. And he's having to lead these people who are rebellious, lead these people who don't trust God. And he just wants to to bring the best for them. And they don't care. Multiple times they tried to remove him from leadership, right? So here's how Moses responds this moment. It's in verse 10 of chapter 20. He gathers up everybody. He says this, Hear now, you rebels. Ooh, all right. That's not a good opening line. He's like, gather up. He's like, hey, you scoundrels, you terrible people, right? <laughs> a leader should not speak that way to his people, right? So that's his first flaw right here. He says, hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Hmm. That's another flaw. Remember, he was supposed to speak on behalf of God, but now he's saying, shall we be the ones who do it? That's kind of like someone stepped up and was like, do I have to do everything myself? That's what he's basically shouting out in front of these people. He's like, you guys are terrible. Do I have to do everything myself? Not a good moment for Moses. Well, it gets even worse, all right? It says in the next uh, sentence, it says, and Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. Remember, he was supposed to speak to the rock. But instead, he takes the, the staff and he just beats this rock. He forces his will upon it. Now, the, the miracle still happens. It says, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. But Moses has disobeyed in three ways. He's insulted God's people. He's claimed that this is all on him, that this is all going to be for his glory in that moment. And then rather than obey what God would want him to do, he forces his will upon it. Now, God still brought about a miracle. And we need to be careful about this because sometimes we can see God do a work in someone's life and we need to be careful that just because we saw a God activity happen doesn't mean that the person was obeying what God wanted to do. That just shows that God is still faithful and committed to his people and his purposes. So we need to be careful about that sometimes. And here's where Moses is shown to have the exact same problem as the Israelites. He won't listen to God. In this moment, he wasn't trusting God and he disobeyed. And God even brings that up. And it's kind of tragic. It's in verse 12. It says, And Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Not even Moses, the spiritual leader, the one who's helped to rescue them from Pharaoh and Egypt and has led them all these years, not even he will get to walk into the promised land. And this should be sending up alarm bells for us, right? Because we've seen how these people act with a spiritual leader like Moses over them. What are they going to do without one? Without Moses or anyone like Moses to step up and tell them, this is how God wants us to live. What are they going to do next? And in fact, the next few books all show us they really, really mess things up. Really bad, okay? But before we get into that, there's this tension, right? Where Moses knows all of this. He knows he's been leading these people who are bound for their own destruction. And so he's determined, he's like, I got to give them something. And it's to that we come to the book of Deuteronomy. Because the book of Deuteronomy is Moses' final speech. He gathers everyone up and he's basically telling them, hey, guys, I'm going to be gone soon, so we need to get this right. Here's how you need to live going forward. If you're going to be God's people so that God will do something remarkable through you and set this world right as you follow and trust him, then there's got to be a code. There's got to be something that you can hold on to that's going to help you that you should have learned from the wilderness journey. The thing that you should have been gleaning from, that you should have picked up on during your time of testing. And he starts off in the book of Deuteronomy in a rather bad note. He kind of, for the first few chapters, just labels out all of their list of mistakes, all their history. He's like, Here, you did this, and you did this, and you did this. It's a terrible opening line for any message or sermon, right? Where you just step up and you're like, hey guys, you're horrible people, right? That's what he does in the book of Deuteronomy. But he has a purpose behind it. Because he's addressing the problem. He's like, you guys are a problem. It needs to be dressed with. It needs to be fixed. But he does promise something. He does point out something remarkable that happens. And it's in chapter 2 of Deuteronomy. 
He says, for Yahweh your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years, Yahweh your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. He's basically saying, you guys are terrible people. But remember, God has been faithful to you even when you weren't faithful to him. Now remember, we talked about that last week. That was the big theme of last week's message, that God is faithful to us even when we're not faithful to him. And so the book of Deuteronomy opens up with Moses reminding the people of that. He's like, you guys are screw-ups, but God has not given up on you. God has stuck with you these 40 years. He has been faithful to you. He is still taking care of you even when you did not fully trust him. But things have got to change. You know, God wants to be in this marriage relationship. He wants to be in this partnership with you. And you haven't been pulling your weight. But this has got to change if we're going to be the people that God wants us to be, right? This is what Moses is telling them. So he's like, here's here's what you need to know in order to be the people as you go into the promised land that you need to be. It's in chapter 6 of Deuteronomy. And it's something, I think, that we're going to find a lot of similarity to uh, in our own culture. It starts off like this. Chapter 6, verse 4. It says, hear, O Israel. It says, listen, let me have your attention. It says, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. Meaning, we worship the God, the only God, the one who is the supplier and caretaker of all things. He is our master. He is our only need in life. He's like, that is our God. He says, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. Here's the command. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This single passage is basically the central command of the entire Old Testament. It's what's known as the Shema. And they were told to teach it diligently to each other and to their family. And in it, God is declaring something very important about how he wants his people to live, how he wants them to go forward in this world. And it centers upon that God wants his people to listen to him and to love him. That's the central point of this entire message today. The thing I want you to really walk away understanding, that God wants us to listen to him and to love him. Remember, the listen thing should perk up our ears if we've been paying attention over the past weeks. Because anytime God speaks, right, something obeys him. Like you look at the creation story in Genesis chapter 1. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. So far in the story, we've seen every time God speaks, creation obeys and it's expected that God's people would obey as well. So he's saying, listen to God, listen and obey. And what does this God want you to do? What's his command? He wants you to love him with all your strength, with all your might, with every little fiber of your being. Love God because out of that, God's going to work through us. Out of that, we're going to be able to be the people that God wants us to be. And in this story so far, we've seen like how God wants to be in the center of their lives with how he has his tabernacle dwelling in the middle of them. And now he's saying, here's the ethic. Here's the, the way you live your life. Is he wants you to listen to God and to love God. This is how you will be defined as a people going forward into this promised land. Everything hinders upon this. And they were to diligently teach this to one another. In fact, the following verse says, hey, this command This should be something that parents should be teaching their kids, not your spiritual leaders should be teaching it to their kids, right? So this is not like you bring them to church and let the pastor and the staff teach your kids how to listen to God and love God. It's saying everyone has this responsibility to be diligently teaching the next generation to listen to God and to love God, to not forget what God has done. Because God is very adamant. He doesn't want what he has done to be forgotten. Because if we forget what God has done for us and his actions and his words, then we will ignore them. But if we remember what God has done and the words he has to say, then we will live in light of them. We can see examples of this, right? This is why we're always saying, you know, hey, come and be part of God's family. Let's come together. Let's rejoice. Let's celebrate week after week what God has done to remember who he is, to the words he has to say to what he wants to do in your life. Because if we forget that, then it's a spiral out of control. And we're going to see that in the next few weeks, how the Israelites forget that. How everything spirals out of control because they would not listen to God and they would not love God. They they chase after other things. And Moses, he so adamantly wants his people to follow this that in the last few uh, chapters of the book of Deuteronomy, the closing of his speech, he starts stressing more and more how he wants his people to understand what he's trying to get across. He's like, you're about to go into this land without me. Here's how you need to go about it. He says so in chapter 30. 
He says, see, I have said before you today, life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of Yahweh your God that I command you today, meaning have you listened to God, right? By loving Yahweh your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and Yahweh your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Now, for the ancient Israelites, there's some key words in there that they would remember going all the way back to the promise that God wanted of humanity in the Garden of Eden. All this is about God fixing things and restoring back to that garden. When he says things like life and goodness, all right, and walking with God, right? And, and then the other phrase of, you know, you shall live and multiply. Here's this language, God saying, I want to use you to fix the world. And Moses is saying, we have that opportunity. God's people have that opportunity in front of them. They can choose to either partner with God in this mission or they can choose their own way. The way that leads to death and evil. He goes on to stress he says in verse 17, he says, but if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. It's like, I want to lead you if you will not submit, if you will not surrender, if you will not listen and love me, then you're going to get what you ask for. And you're going to lose the blessings and the opportunities I have to use you. It's all going to go away. And Moses doesn't want that for his people. He stresses that so much. And in verse 19, he says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. He says, I, I'm going to get all creation to understand and to witness that what I'm trying to get you to see. So you can't say, well, no one told me that. He's like, everyone, all creation is going to be witnesses of what I'm telling you today. That I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving Yahweh your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that Yahweh swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. See, Moses is saying, I want you to choose this other way. And I cannot help but read this as I've been praying over this past few weeks to see some similarities and wonder if Moses was here in the room, would he say the same thing to us? And we say, you know what, Bluff Church? You're about to enter into a new promised land for you. You've been waiting for 10 years for this. And I'm going to lead you into somewhere else, right? That's what Moses is saying. If he was here in the day. And I imagine he would say, but you have the opportunity to be part of what God wants to do. Or you can ignore God. You can turn away. You, for, you can forget about him. And you will lose all of it. And this responsibility is upon all of us. And Moses is very clear. He's like, this is probably going to happen. I'm not talking about us, but I'm talking about to the Israelites. In fact, he's not caught off guard. He warns them. He's like, I know you're going to forget this because once you have all the blessings God wants for you, once you have the home you've always wanted, once you have that relationship you've longed for, once you have those kids you've dreamed about, once you have that success and the victory that you've always craved, then you'll be tempted to forget the God who got you there. The God who wanted to bless you. He warns them. And he tells them, he's like, I know you're going to fail this. Like, he, he knows. He's been with them for 40 years. He knows. He's like, these people are going to mess this up, right? And yet he stops and gives them hope in his closing words. He's like, I know you're going to mess this up. But one day God's going to intervene. And he's going to change your heart. He's going to do something radical in your life that's going to change your heart so you can listen to God and love God as you were always meant to be. And that's what he's telling the Israelites. And then the book ends. And Moses goes up on a mountain, and he dies. And that closes out the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, which were written by Moses. The key, central, biblical text for the, the ancient Jews and Hebrews. And it ends with some unanswered questions. Things that we, if we've been paying attention, that we should be longing to find resolution for. Like, what about the descendant of the woman who's come to defeat evil that was promised in Genesis chapter 3? Where is he at? We haven't seen him. Or how is God going to rescue the world through Abraham's family and bring blessing upon the world when it ends with them right on the cusp of entering into the promised land and we've seen their long history of failures? How is God going to bring in his rescue plan through them? Or how is God, a holy God, going to be reconciled to the rest of rebellious people, us, who don't trust him, who weren't born into that family, right? How is God going to do an act that's going to bring us into his family? 
that he's promised? Or how is God going to transform the hearts of his people? We end the book of Deuteronomy and the Torah with these questions just looming above us, and it doesn't answer them. And we're having to wait with this tension of wondering, who is this individual who's going to do all this? And which brings us to the, the Gospels in the New Testament. Because what the Gospels are trying to stress is that this individual is Jesus who has done all these things. Jesus is that one who was promised in Genesis chapter 3 at the beginning of creation, the one who would defeat evil at its source. Jesus is the one who was born of the family line of Abraham, who through his efforts and through his sacrifice on the cross, God was going to bring in his blessings and his restoration to the rest of the world where reconciled sinners like us can now be part of his family. And it was Jesus who promised that he was going to give us a new heart by giving us the Holy Spirit so that you and I can listen to God and to love him as we were always meant to be as human beings so that we can do and be what the rest of the Israelites long ago could not do. We are capable of doing. We are capable of listening to God and loving God only because of Jesus as our representative. The Gospels are very clear on pointing this out. In fact, it starts out on one of the passages in the book of Matthew where Jesus gets baptized and God speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. God used to only ever say that about Israel as a nation. But when we come to the New Testament, he's like, no, no, I'm talking just about Jesus because Jesus is the true Israel. And all those who are found in him by their faith in him are part of his true Israel family. And Jesus goes out from this and he goes into the wilderness, into the desert for 40 days. Sounds familiar, right? And for 40 days, he faces the exact same challenges that the Israelites face and he passed every test on our behalf. And then he goes out and he gathers 12 men to lead them through the land, teaching them what it means to love or to listen to God and to love God. Just like God led the 12 tribes through the wilderness, right? Teaching them, hey, I want you to listen to me and love me. In Jesus and in the end of the Torah, we're seeing how God so desperately wants us to listen to him and to love him. To come to a point where we are longing for him in our lives. Because that's what we were made for. We weren't made for the nine to five, work a job, get a check, you know, and then eventually die and be forgotten. We were made to live lives of influence. To be his hands and feet. To play a role in his larger purpose. And that, that role might be just how you interact with your family members. But you were created to listen to God to love him so that you could be in relationship with him and that God desires to do great things through you and through his people, the church, when his church listens to him and when it loves him. And this is crucial. I mean, the Bible over and over keeps stressing this, that we are to always be coming to this God, always seeking to surrender ourselves, to say, God, I don't want to listen to anyone else. I don't want to listen to all the other voices in my life. I don't even want to listen to myself. God, I want to listen to you. And I want to be who you want me to be. The book of Romans preaches this a lot. In fact, the book of Romans in chapter 12, you find Paul, the writer. He says, I appeal to you, therefore. He's like, I'm begging you. I'm begging you. Brothers and sisters, I would add. By the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That God wants us to be listening to him and to love him. And that makes all the difference when we come to those wilderness experiences in our own life. When we face those moments, this command to listen to love God is not the, hey, this is the solution on how to get out of the wilderness. But this is the solution on how we live in the wilderness. When we feel tested, when we feel this pressure when we feel this uh, weight on our shoulder and obstacles all around us and all these reasons to doubt God and doubt what God is doing and think all these negative thoughts, maybe even about ourselves, it's in that moment where God's saying, stop and listen to God and to love him. That's how we respond to suffering. That's how we respond to pain. That's how we respond to those moments in our lives where it feels like everything is falling apart. Where God time and time again is saying, be still, and listen to me, love me, and I'm going to walk you through this wilderness journey. I'm going to guide you. Even if it takes 40 years, I'm going to guide you through this experience. And that makes all the difference 
when you go through your own wilderness experiences. But it also makes a difference for us as a church. Remember I said there's a lot of parallels in this passage to us in our own history. I read this and I'm like, we, we've been those Israelites. And I'm not saying that to shame us. I'm just saying that's just human nature. Where we have been for 10 years, wandering around in this community. But God has been faithful. And God is, is bringing us to our own little promised land. But if we are to be the people that God wants us to be when we get there, then it means we have to listen to God and love him. And that's not on me and Dave and our elders or, or Stephanie or anyone else alone. That's on each of us individually. Our faith is a community thing. For whatever reason, we, we've adopted this belief that we think my faith is me and Jesus. It's just us. But biblically, it's a community experience. It's because we need each other. So we each need one of each other to be listening to God, to be loving God. We need to be holding each other accountable for this. This is what we need as we enter into the next place. It's why we say all the time that we want to love God and love people as Jesus has loved us because we want to live lives of influence. We want to be difference makers. We want to be people who live to, to just talk about and make Jesus famous in every area of our lives. Not just Sunday morning. We want to live lives here where when we listen to God, it's not just this time. Not just in the two hours that we're here. Not just, or an hour more likely, where we worship and we sing songs and then we listen to Mason ramble for wherever and wondering when he's going to stop, right? That's not the only time we need to stop and listen to God. But the expectation that I want you to be walking out of here, that we need each of us to be, if we're going to be the, the church that we need to be for this community, is that we all need to be listening to God. We all need to be loving him with every fiber of our being. That's what we need. And maybe this morning, as we're talking about that, there's something in this, this story that we've been looking at that God has been speaking to you. And maybe God has been telling you, hey, you're the one who's wandering right now and I want you to come home. You've been trying to do this. You've been trying to rebel against God over and over and over and God's stopping and saying, won't you trust me? Won't you listen to me? Won't you love me? Maybe that's someone here. You've been wandering. And I hope that this will be the morning where you can say, it's time to come home. I want to be part of God's family. I want to be part of God's agenda. I want to live a life that it can say on my tombstone, saying, I listened to God and I loved him. What a wonderful thing for your family members and friends to be able to say that about you. And I wonder if there's anyone in this room who needs that. This would be a morning where you need to come home. And if that's the case, here in a minute, I'm going to stop and pray. And then when Stephanie and the band come up and they lead us in worship, our hearts wanting to be wherever God is, I hope in this moment you would be looking and asking those questions of God. And if that's you, in the back of the room, there's going to be men and women who are going to be back there for you, who you can talk to. There are our elders, our spiritual leaders. And if you need to talk to me, I'll be over there. If you need to talk to someone, you can even come and grab us after the service. If you don't want to do it right then, we understand that, all right? But we don't want you to walk out of here without knowing that you are in God's presence. And he dwells with you. And we would love for you to, to be the kind of people who go out of here wanting to listen to God, to love him. Because he's never given up on you. And great things are in store for the one who wants to listen and love God. So let's be that kind of person. Let's be that kind of people. Let's be that kind of church. Won't you pray with me? Father, I cannot thank you enough that in a very short amount of time, you're going to be bringing us into a home. For 10 years, we have been wandering as a church and we've made some mistakes along the way. But you have remained faithful to us. And you are going to do, I know, great things through us as we, we seek to be a church that wants to listen to you. To be a people who can be characterized by uh, this desire to want to listen to you and to love you. Father, I ask that, that we might be that kind of people as we leave this place, that as we go back to our family members, our friends, our, our jobs, the people that we come in contact with. 
May we come and approach those moments with the desire of saying, God, won't you speak to me in this moment? I want to listen to you. Whatever you have for me, I want to be obedient. I want to love you. And I want it to be so evident and so clear that others can point to and say, you know what? There's something different about you. You're someone, oh, you're someone who has this life because we've chosen your life and your goodness for ourselves. In the name of Jesus Christ, for what he has done for us, we choose that. So Father, I ask that you would search our hearts. Wherever our hearts are hard and rebellious towards you, would you break those walls down? Will you forgive us for how we have failed to listen and love you? And may we go out of here as new people with fresh excitement, fresh energy and passion for the vision that you have for us, for what you're going to do through us in a very short amount of time. We thank you so much for that, Father, of your faithfulness. I ask that you guide us right now. It's in your name I pray. Amen.